they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been here, and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. So I've changed my opinion on one other piece of legislation. I honestly think the um, the Green New Deal is pretty good because I just want a little choo-choo train to come outside and pick me up to go to work because I don't want to have to deal with a fucking car ever again. Choo-choo trains are nice. 20 seconds in. Swore. <laughs> Sorry, kids. <laughs> Cars are the worst. <laughs> You're making me like AOC. It's not a good sign. <laughs> Anyways, guys, hi, it's uh, Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hey, guys. Hi. And <laughs> we have senior legal analysts with us uh, again, uh, Tom Cavanaugh. How are you, Tom? Great to be here. Today I make the case that all libertarians aren't anarchists. But we'll get to that later. <laughs> but you got you got to stay all the way to the end for yeah, that one. All the way to the end. There's your teaser. Stay past the third commercial break. <laughs> That's right. Before we get there, if you guys like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, guest suggestions, uh, anything like that, um, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul P O L, uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, just look for Barstool Politics. The podcast. Spotify, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. And then for uh, new listeners or returning listeners, uh, we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a real money political prediction market, uh, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy uh, buy or sell shares in future political events. Um, like we've been saying, we've been using it to kind of keep tabs on the uh, Democratic presidential candidates, uh, see where people are putting their money, who they think is doing better, who is you know kind of lagging behind um brexit uh that's in there what other things am i missing that we've looked at recently oh i'm trying to remember it's a lot of it's been mostly the primary stuff that's yeah. been the big one yeah anyways check that out um what's great for our listeners uh is if uh, you open up a new account you receive up to a 20 dollars match on your first deposit um so for example if you, if you open up a 20 dollars account predicted will match that 20 dollars um, giving you $40 to use. Um, all you have to do is use the promo link, uh, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20 uh, to check it out. So give that a try. Thank you, Predictit. Yeah. As always. Um, lots of fun. I got to, I don't think I had ever heard Mueller speak prior to this past week. And he sounds just, he just sounds terrible. Like somebody's <laughs> just borderline senile grandfather who's just, he just sounds weak. And kind of, he just sounds tired. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot. take away from the sound of his voice. I know. That's, that's all I have. Now you guys can do actual analysis on what he said. All right, let's let's dive into it. So over the two years that he led the special counsel's office, we hadn't heard a peep from Robert Mueller. As Nick said, we didn't even know what his voice sounded like. And then late last week, Robert Mueller broke his silence and made his first public comments as special counsel. He talked for a mere nine minutes and took no questions. Nearly everything he said was taken directly from his report. He explained that the Department of Justice policy that a president cannot be indicted while in office. 
He also explicitly declined to clear the president on obstruction of justice charges. Mueller's relative silence has stood in stark contrast to the president, who has been unrelenting in his effort to shape and craft the narrative of the Russian investigation. Given that this is likely the first and last time we hear from Mueller, we thought it important to spend a few minutes dissecting the few words that he shared with us. Let's start with the Department of Justice opinion that a sitting president cannot be indicted. Nick, I think it's important to actually hear his voice. I know you don't like it, but let's go to the tape uh, and then we can talk afterwards. All right. Two seconds because I wasn't prepared. Here we go. The introduction to the volume two of our report explains that decision. It explains that under long-standing department policy, a president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. That is unconstitutional. Even if the charge is kept under seal and hidden from public view, that too is prohibited. The special counsel's office is part of the Department of Justice and by regulation, it was bound by that department policy. Charging the president with a crime was therefore not an option we could consider. It's in Tom's house and Steve's house. And <laughs> what, why can't I remember that guy's name? Which guy? No, you can't remember. His no, name. I can't remember. Yeah. It's gone now. Yeah, this is, this is I'll an think issue. of it. And yeah, just jump maybe in. We, st- we start with Tom. So, so Mueller is very clear here to say that you can't charge a sitting president given the Department of Justice policy. The Supreme Court has never weighed in on this, though. So it's actually not clear. He used three different words: yeah. regulation, uh, constitutional, and policy. And while it is a policy, I'm not aware that it's either of the other two things. The Constitution is silent on this question. I think it is correct to say that the framers had in mind that impeachment was the only approach that could be taken to unseat a sitting president. I think you're reading that into the Constitution. It's not there explicitly. But the fact that they wrote the impeachment process in suggests to me, and this is the root of the Department of Justice policy, uh, that if there is a reason to unseat a president, you use that process, not a criminal indictment. so I agree with him, even though I think his way of explaining it was tortured mm-hmm. and um, leaves you with the impression that the Supreme Court may well have answered this, and they have not, or that the Constitution may say something to it, and it doesn't. It creates so, a lot. Oh, go ahead, Phil, yeah. What, what, so I, I guess maybe this is what you were just saying, and I just didn't. I, I, can you clarify, why, why would it be... So if this case came before the Supreme Court, I, I could see where they say, look, there is this statement that says you can impeach someone, but that wouldn't necessarily preclude a criminal charge from being brought, or, or would it? Would that be their interpretation? It, it doesn't bring in the separation of powers, right, because it's an executive branch action against the executive branch. So what, what would be the, I guess, you know, I, I can understand why from a practical standpoint you would say, uh, a, a president being open to criminal charges, you know, opens the door for misuse or abuse of that power. But I, I don't know that I. Is there an obvious constitutional argument for why this wouldn't be allowed? If this went before the Supreme Court, what would they rule to say that yes, you can't bring a charge, or you, or sure you can? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It, it certainly does. I, I think they'd say two things. The first is, uh, the document on its face provides a possible approach to removing a president subsequent to which you could file your criminal indictment so that you can have both, you just can't have them simultaneously. And if the framers wanted uh, to allow a president to be charged with a crime, uh, the the thinking is they they would have allowed that. The second is there is a balance of uh, powers question here, it seems to me. 
if if the president's own branch can effectively remove him by charging him with a crime, you've essentially undermined the presidency even within the, the Article II powers that he's given. And my sense is the Supreme Court would likely say uh, you can't have, uh, sort of go back to Lincoln, a house divided, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have the Article II president prosecuted by an Article II prosecutor uh, and then pretend that that branch can sustain itself. But I think the, the, the more compelling argument is the framers thought about it, talked about it, and produced the impeachment process, which would precede an indictment. Now, so everybody, I don't want to, I don't want to yeah. state that in a way that suggests everybody agrees to this and there's no debate about it at all, Phil. Uh, that's the side I fall sure. on. But would, I, I don't know that everybody agrees. Would that logic then apply to other governmental officials that are subject to impeachment? So would the argument be that a, you know, a Supreme Court justice or a federal judge or whatever also couldn't be charged with a federal crime as long as they were a judge, that you would have to impeach them first? Ooh, I don't I, know. That's a yeah. I I think the answer would be, and maybe this is the third part to why not indict the president. He is uniquely situated as the commander in chief of the military, and as the chief legal officer in the country. And to indict a sitting president and have him defending himself in a criminal court means that we effectively don't have a president, um, even though he hasn't been impeached. So I, I guess what I'd suggest my reading would be, uh, you cannot indict a president. I think you could indict uh, a lower official on the grounds that they're not running the country. They're not the chief executive. They don't have to try and run the military, among other things. Um, The president is an absolutely unique thing on earth. And I think the framers got that so that they produced a political process for removing him, not a criminal court process for doing it. And I don't think the other people would be the same. With, with the, I, I'm dominating the conversation, but I'm going to keep doing that. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's sovereign immunity, but there's a similar concept that, that applies here in some ways, which would take a different approach, which would be to say that the president's actions while he's in office aren't necessarily personal. They're carrying out the duty of the president. And so to hold him re- responsible, I mean, that's another avenue to go down. Would that come into, I guess I, I should clarify. The idea is if, if, you know, if you're George W. Bush, and you make a decision to, uh, you know, uh, torture a person to find out where the bomb is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that George Bush wouldn't face criminal charges because he wasn't acting as George Bush. He was acting as essentially the chief representative of the United States. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, there's there's something along those lines that would come into play here as well. But there's a difference, though, when you think about it. Mueller was clear to say that the president can be charged after they've left office. Mm-hmm. And, and Mueller even makes the argument, that's why you do the investigation now. That's why the Constitution allows, the DOJ allows the investigation, so you can gather information while you still have documents, while people still remember these things. So it's not total sovereign immunity, right? They can be held accountable. It's unlikely that a, a subsequent president is going to indict, you know, lead an investigation of a previous president, but it's, it's possible Whereas if you're a sovereign king, you know, that's... Right. Yeah. But look, here's a, here's a second misconception. The first is that the Constitution says you can't indict a sitting president. It doesn't. The second that I think a lot of people harbor is the idea that impeachment is only a criminal process. The framers were really uh, uh, adamant about the fact that this was about negligence, capacity. Madison used the word perfidy. Uh, perfidy. Um, If the president acts in a way that is inconsistent with discharging the duties of his office, impeachment allows people to remove him. 
And that, that is to say, the bar is lower than a criminal charge, even though they use this unusual high crimes, high crimes and misdemeanors, misdemeanors yeah. and treason and bribery and that sort of thing. But there's no doubt in anybody's mind that impeachment is a lower bar than having to charge an actual criminal offense. Madison went on and on about this, and rightly so, it seems to me. So you've been listening to Justin Amash, my libertarian friend in mm-hmm. Congress, yeah. mm-hmm. who I think knows the Constitution better than anyone else in it, um, making the case that while people are worried about using impeachment too soon and too politically, uh, his case, and it's one Madison made too, was you need to use it often enough that it's a deterrent. Mm-hmm. And that maybe what presidents ought to be worried about is the political process used to remove a president, not just because you want to undo an election, but because there's genuine misbehavior, even if it doesn't rise to criminal culpability. Hmm. Right, because there is there's Nick's not digging this. No, no, I am. I, I I'm just I I would wonder how the frequency of using that tool would actually work and keep the executive in a, a stable state where it could still function and yeah. perform the mm-hmm. duties right. that it needs to perform. Yeah, well, I think what Amash was after isn't this should be a regular tool in the arsenal of a Congress that can't get its way with the president. But, but I think he is onto something when we've mm-hmm. barely used it in our, you know, our entire American history. And, and it seems clear to me that this president isn't afraid of it at all. I, I think in some ways he's courting it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that changes the dynamic of what impeachment means to a president in terms of staying in office, it sure. seems to me. The political dynamic. And, and behaving in yes. ways that suggest he should stay in office. Well, this might be a good transition. Should we jump to the sep- second topic and play sure. Mueller? So this is the second clip is Mueller talking about the obstruction of justice and what he found with Trump, because the, many are discussing whether Mueller is secretly saying here, is quietly saying, it's time for impeachment. Mm-hmm. The order appointing me special counsel authorized us to investigate actions that could obstruct the investigation. And we conducted that investigation and we kept the office of the acting attorney general apprised of the progress of our work. And as set forth in the report after that investigation, if we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. All right, Tom's shaking his head here. So let's, let's walk through a little bit. So Mueller chooses his words very carefully. In both his report and the public statement, he noted that, one, the DOJ policy does not allow him to indict a sitting president. And two, if the president did not commit a crime, he would have said so. So, so Tom, I mean, is, is he suggesting here that he did commit a crime? Or are you, I mean... It's frustrating, like trying to read between the lines. Because this turns on its head the most important principle in criminal law in America, the presumption of innocence. To talk about the idea that they're looking for sufficient proof of innocence, this Mm -hmm. is horrifying. Uh, There is a a verdict in Europe called not proven. Mm -hmm. So we don't do this, of course. You're guilty or not guilty. And if the prosecutor doesn't meet the burden of proof, you are not guilty. In Europe, there's a third option, and the idea is that you can throw shade on a person and say, well, listen, we think probably they were up to no good. Maybe they didn't get to the burden of proof, but we want to be sure for the rest of their life they're saddled with the idea that we didn't find them innocent, even though we didn't find them guilty. This is not the way American law works. And if it was, uh, I, I, I think we'd all be appalled by it. And what, Mueller, uh, what Mueller did here was just simply to say, 
wink, wink, nod, nod. Mm-hmm. Uh, we couldn't find enough evidence that he's innocent, so you should think him guilty. And, and that is not the role of a prosecutor, and it's not American law. And the argument... So what, oh, go ahead. I was just saying, the argument he puts out there is that because... I'm cutting you off now, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because he felt constrained by the DOJ policy. But you're right that he's absolutely saying here, I can't indict a president. I'm not going to clear him. So the only thing you can assume is he's saying this guy committed obstruction of justice. But I'm not saying so, but I am saying so. Uh, He declines to clear him, and he declines to charge him. And then he he does this press conference having said the report speaks for itself... To speak for the report. <laughs> but I would argue that he didn't decline to charge him. He, I think what he was saying is he declined to clear him, but he can't charge him. Mm-hmm. Right? I, th- I think he's being too clever for his own good. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Um, too and, by and the that, books. I, so I, I, that's what I come back to. What should he have said? In the, because it feels like, you know, it's reading between the lines, it, and I think he's assuming everyone is, but they're not, right? Mm-hmm. You just need to be direct. It feels like what he should say or what he's wanting to say is if this were anyone else he would have we would have brought charges against him but we can't under department of justice guidelines now the argument against that is that you're accusing someone and they can't face their day in court yes. um, which deprives them of some rights there so but he's he essentially like doing he's boxed that boxed in how does yeah. he, what does he do or what does he say in this case that would express concern without being clever or without like you know going I don't know. I'm not for, sure what what to what to do. Well, for a point of comparison, so Ken Starr. Now he was op- Ken Starr was operating under different rules. He could, in fact, say that there were crimes committed, or there were. He suggested eleven impeachable offenses. Mm-hmm. And now Mueller couldn't do that, but maybe maybe he should have. Right? If you're going to do this investigation, um, you're right. I think he's too clever by half. Where he says, well, "I can't say it," but I'm kind of saying, "Wink, wink." And the the American public doesn't know how to read that. Why couldn't he do that? Is that just the difference between the independent counsel and the special prosecutor? Yes. So he didn't have that. My understanding is that he didn't have the capacity to say that uh, he didn't have the ability to charge or refer those impeachable offenses. So Ken Starr, and that's part of the reason after the Starr report, Congress pulled back and the special counsel rules are much more restrictive in what Mm -hmm. you can do. It's working through the DOJ. And then Mueller says, well, I can't because of DOJ rules. But then what's the point of the special counsel? Uh, Right. So I I don't know that the rules prohibit... Uh, Mueller from saying, here are five areas of concern. Mm-hmm. Yes. <clears throat> or uh, here are six things that we were unable to uh, uh, reconcile with the facts, you know, things he said maybe that weren't true. Uh, I don't think he can write articles of impeachment. Starr basically did that. Mm-hmm. I want to say there was 11 of them yes. or 12 yeah. or something like that. But what, what, what those were, if you take the title off, were just simply statements of fact. Bill Clinton lied to so-and-so. Bill Clinton lied about so-and-so. Well, I don't know why you couldn't do the same thing here and just not title it grounds for impeachment, but instead say findings of Mueller. And he goes in the report itself on the obstruction of justice section. He mm-hmm. goes nine tenths of the way. He yeah. says here are yeah. here are the rule or here are the thresholds you have to meet for obstruction of justice. And then he goes through it and says Trump meets all three of those for at least four mm-hmm. or five of the cases, but he doesn't make that final step to say. Well, you said that here are five things we should be worried about. I'm not questioning his integrity, but but there's this thing in professional sports where a guy plays one year longer than he should. Mm -hmm. You know, remember Michael Jackson on the Wizards. That should just Michael Jordan or Michael Jordan. Sorry. (laughs) Michael Michael Jackson probably (laughs) did it, too. Right. Uh, This this felt like, man, one too many things. You know, the report can speak for itself. It says on its face it's supposed to. 
and then to stand up and say the report speaks for itself, but let me say to you what I've already said to you about the report speaking for itself. It speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. And let's say this. He is a private citizen. Jerry Nadler can subpoena him tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we're never going to hear from him again, uh, I'm guessing Nadler doesn't want him to testify. But, but if he wants him to, he's a private citizen. He's got no more ability to say no to this than you and I do. Who do you think his audience was with this, with this press conference? Because there's part of me that thinks you know, he's speaking to the American public, but I don't think that's actually the case. Is he trying to jumpstart Republicans? I don't, he's, he's, trying, he's assuming people are going to read between the lines of what he's saying. But again, I come back around to whoever his audience is, he's being, again, too clever for too them. Because if it's the general public, he needs to be direct. They don't understand the, the procedures. They don't understand the laws, the implications. If he's speaking to Republicans, he needs to be direct, right? And I don't know who, who he, what he aims to achieve by having this press conference, or at least by having a press conference in which he says what he said. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether he actually thought people would read the report. You know, that the facts would stand for themselves. And the reality is most, in, we don't, I don't know if we live in that era anymore where right. the report, I mean, if you, for me, when I read the report, it was an entirely different experience than listening to it on the talk news shows, right? I mean, it was it was powerful, it was legal, and I think it was compelling, but he didn't want to do any of this other stuff. He didn't want to do TV. But we live in a world where Donald Trump is very strategic. He's on the news. He's on Twitter. He's, he's hitting. Bill Barr is also very good. Bill Barr has been doing interviews shaping that narrative. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether, I mean, even think about like James Comey. James Comey understood the way in which shaping the narrative, even though he was annoying in the way he did that, uh, that you had to sell the narrative of the legal. It troubles me to think about that, that it's not just the facts anymore. It's how you present that, how you... I, I hope we're not drifting in that way, but I think we might be. Well, I mean, he he didn't say anything that pundits haven't been talking about for weeks at this point. I, I mean, all this stuff, people have already digested and created their own narrative around anyways. Whether you're on the right or the left, every pundit has gone over this stuff ad nauseum for, again, weeks at this sure. point. So the narrative is already made. This was too late. Yes. The information yes. wasn't new, so this was pointless, in my opinion. Right. The, it, it means nothing. Unless, unless he, you're more direct. Right. Unle- yeah, unless you're specifically, like you said, targeting a specific segment of the government or some other audience that you're trying to motivate or, or mobilize, this, again, means nothing. If you're disappointed that the report didn't have the impact impact you wanted, then this press conference does nothing to change that. Right. A press conference might have changed it, but not this one. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Think about the impact that Bill Barr's initial press conference when he said he was going to summarize, or he didn't use the word, I guess he did use the word summarize, but the findings, how impactful that was. Mueller could have done the same thing. And you wonder where we would be in terms of the national conversation if he'd come out and said what Tom said, that I have, there are five issues that I think the American public and Congress needs to kick around that are deeply concerning, that may be impeachable offenses. We're in an entirely different place than him being silent, not making that case, and then allowing the president and Bill Barr to shape the narrative. You almost felt like he thought the report in speaking for itself would have produced impeachment. Mm -hmm. And because it didn't, he's going to give voice to it, not the details of it, but simply raise it in the American and, and more importantly, congressional conscience, uh, conscience again, in the hope that, I, I, maybe hope is too strong a word, um, I feel like he thinks Congress didn't do what they were supposed to do. Yes. And that might be partly because of the way he framed it, but it might also be partly because they have figured out with 18 months left in this presidency, the, the politics of impeachment are dicey. 
and he didn't put enough pressure on them or the American right. public to have a real debate about right. this. Mm-hmm. So you have the press conference. Yeah. You say again the things you've written, hoping that maybe Congress says, oh, we've got to do something. <laughs> Congress really does have to either do something or not. Right. Right. Uh, to pretend that Jerry Nadler is going to find something now with his million pages of subpoena documents is, I, I regard this as sort of silly. And it's so late. It's so late in the game. Right, correct. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, I do think it's valuable in having these conversations, but having them four weeks ago is entirely different than now when people are fatigued and tired. That's crazy, though. I mean, no. I, I don't disagree with you that that's the political climate we live in. But the fact that this massive report on, you know, the numerous impe- impeachable offenses this president has committed, that it came out four weeks ago or whatever, and it's like, oh, you missed the window and it's time to move on. is insane <laughs> that that's yes. the world we live in. That's crazy. Yes, yes. I agree. <laughs> but it is the world we live in. I, I don't think the American public, I think they've moved on. And and. So part of me wonders whether Mueller just missed this, uh, that this is you have to present things differently, that you've got, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think about Ken Starr, who I think overplayed his hand and maybe had too, of a, too proactive in terms of that. But he knew how to, how to present this debate and force the country to have a real conversation about it. Mueller just said, read my report, a 400-page document. Nobody's going to read it. Members of Congress have not read that mm-hmm. report. Maybe yes, there's they, another reason for a press conference. Exactly, right. What are you right. talking about? We had news stories like two hours after it was out. They obviously read the whole thing. <laughs> I don't know what the hell you're talking That's about. Right. Well, and, so the other thing is, to, I, I think you're you're right, Phil. If, if only because even when Mueller does this nine-minute press conference, it does move the needle to some degree, right? He comes out and says a few things, and suddenly it gets us and, talking again. Well, and this is the thing that we've been I, I this is where I think expectations need to change a little bit though as well, which is that from the time I mean from the time they announced the Mueller report, from the time that Comey was fired, there were these expectations that it was, you know, a month from now it'll all be over. And if we look at historic, you know, examples, the Star report took forever. The Watergate investigation played out over a long yeah. period of time. And there were lots of times where people were saying, this is done, you know, get over it. It's, you know, quit, quit investigating, quit harping on Watergate. And, and because people stuck with it, you need the Amashes, the people of, you know, the people who are willing to say, hey, this is important. And it's not about the politics. It's about the principle. And I'm going to push forward. And if that happens, more stuff potentially comes out. But that we're would... so accustomed to expecting, hey, there's, you know, we want we want election returns two hours after the polls close. We want a president to be impeached, you know, a week after the the sure. report comes out, that I think that we lose some perspective on it. That mm-hmm. would be an argument for Democrats pulling Mueller in front of a congressional committee to say, we're talking for eight hours, and mm-hmm. even if the American public isn't paying attention, we're going to get some sound bites and we're going to put them out there. I think that, that should incentivize them to think about this so can we talk about that for a yeah because mm-hmm. that was sort of my my thought is is i i was like tom in that i i i don't imagine this is the last we'll hear of them because i or my first thought was congress will uh, will call him will 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 call him to testify will subpoena him um to ask him direct questions but as I think about it a little bit, I, I don't know. Is that is that a good strategy? If he were a cooperative witness, if he really wanted to give the information, so if he wants to uh, kind of, you know, push this forward, then that would be an opportunity that he could say things in testimony that would encourage further investigation or encourage the process forward. 
but he seems like someone who is so by the book and so careful about what he says that I could see it actually backfiring if Democrats call him and ask him questions yep. that he is so vague on or unwilling to answer that it doesn't actually give the fireworks moment that they're wanting. Mm-hmm. So I, what what is your thoughts, strategically speaking? Let, let's say you're a Democrat and you want impeachment proceedings to move forward or you think that he he is, you know, that impeachment is the way forward. Uh, should you call Mueller to testify? Should you subpoena him? Should you move on other things? Subpoena other, like what, what's the best way forward? Tom, you were shaking your head. Nothing he's going to say is going to add to or subtract from the record he's already made. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I'm not sure the sound bites would make any difference. I, I don't mean to suggest, uh, and I hope I didn't, that I think the time's up uh, and, and now we're past the point where something can be done. I think the evidence has been produced and there isn't more coming. So um, maybe we need to digest all of the documents that are behind the report. Uh, but, but the idea that these congressional committees, and I don't know what there are, seven or eight of them are all doing independent investigations, that they're going to find some smoking gun that all of these Mueller attorneys couldn't with subpoena powers, uh, with grand jury uh, testimony at their disposal, with a real incentive to find it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not going to get into the who do they donate to and all that sort of thing. But when you say to a prosecutor, find the facts, then they do. Uh, And and the idea that we think two years later, a congressional committee by subpoenaing peripheral people is going to find something new, I think that's crazy. So the answer is Congress has to look at what it has and uh, make a decision. Yep. They won't make a decision, though, until they see where the winds are blowing. Well, that's the point, yeah. isn't it? And so calling yeah. Mueller isn't going to change the way the winds blow. Well, here's what I wonder, though. I think this is a great question, Phil, because I wonder whether if you just brought Mueller in and said, read, you know, obstruction mm. section six, you know, read the, the Comey account, mm. read the Don McGahn account and just say, like, hey, it's your report. Just read it. I, yeah. I wonder whether the American public who isn't, isn't going to literally read it but may listen to it on the news, hearing him say that, hearing him tell that, I, it might. It That's might change really the political dynamic enough mm-hmm. where then Congress would get a backbone. Because I don't think, to, I don't think they're going to do – I don't think they're going to read it and make an honest assessment. They're, they're watching where the political winds are flowing. I, That's well, the case. Man. Yeah. Go ahead, Phil. Well, no, I think you're right. I think they're waiting. I, I don't think it's the right strategy, waiting for the political winds to change. But I think that, that that's what the Democrats or people who, who want this to happen don't realize is that they have some control over the political winds, yeah. right? Like, mm-hmm. they, yes. can, they can turn some fans on. They can move things, you know? They, and so that's where I think that the idea that, uh, you know, Democrats sitting around twiddling their thumbs waiting for public opinion to change misses the way this plays out. Yep. You, you have hearings, you have the conversations, and maybe it's not Mueller. Maybe you use Mueller's report as a roadmap. You call in some of the other people he talks about to have them tell their story. So you have, you know, Comey, you have whoever else come in and tell their story first person. It's on the national news. It, and, and that is how you change the, the um, I mean, I think that's the thing, is that if impeachment is a political process, then it, you have to persuade. You have to persuade and convince people that this is an impeachable offense. You can't sit around waiting for them to come to that conclusion and then act on it. And, and that's where, I, I don't know, I think that they could help themselves 
Um, if they really believe that this is, if, if they believe that this is an impeachable offense, then you have to make that argument. And they're not doing that. They're waiting for people to come to that conclusion. Right. Right. And the easiest, so the easiest way to do it is to write articles of impeachment mm -hmm. and introduce them for debate. Yep. Which is Mueller, uh, Nick's entirely right. He sounds, you know, like he's on his way to the old folks home. Jimmy Stewart. Got uh, it. Yeah. Oh, putting, old Jimmy putting Stewart. Him on, okay. Putting him in front of Congress is not going to be anywhere as effective as letting the most articulate member of the Democratic Party introduce articles of impeachment for debate and then have at it. You've got specifics, mm -hmm. you've got articles, you've got a debate, you can put the evidence next to them, you can run television commercials, your PACs can take it up. I'm not arguing that I think they're right or wrong, yep. but I'm saying that's much more effective than putting Robert Mueller Agreed. with that tired voice in front of Congress to say the report speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. Think about the impact that Justin Amash has had Tweeting, giving yeah. speeches, right? I mean, he is shaping the narrative mm -hmm. as a Republican more so than the Democrats have been able to do so. Now, he's in a unique position because he is a Republican. Yes, he's and I forgot to uh, yeah. pause when Phil said a particular thing. We need more Justin Amashes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I absolutely I agree. I 100% agree with you. We need more Justin Amashes, yes. <laughs> more libertarians is always better than fewer libertarians. <laughs> more smart uh, Congress people is the better than more dumb Congress people. <laughs> and right. God knows we've got plenty of the latter. The reason you think we need him and the reason I think we need him might be different, but we can both agree that we need him. <laughs> They're congruent. Uh, yeah. They <laughs> Absolutely. I, I do give him a lot. Principled politicians are good. Right. Yes. And I give him a lot of credit for that, for, for making a really eloquent case. And, and when the parties push back against him, he hasn't stopped. Right. You know, there, there were some behind the scenes uh, efforts to quiet him. And then he went, he was out on the steps giving a lecture. The Freedom um, Caucus basically voted to throw him out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, this is good. All right. We should talk beer, huh? Yes. Let's do that. Phil, what are you enjoying today? Uh, I'm having a. It's called Seek Alter Alternative Route. Route or route? How do you pronounce it? What's your... Uh... Depends. It's Route 66. <laughs> it is Route 66. Yeah. I normally but say But what route, route are you taking to school? Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't take a route. That's just dumb. No. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you should seek an alternative one, apparently. <laughs> right. Uh, this is from Marsh Island Brewing, which is in uh, Maine. It's a double IPA. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm just going to opt out of the long definition. I had a long day <laughs> and it was good. It was good. Beer, not the day wasn't, wasn't necessarily good. The beer was really good. Um, yeah, it was nice. I mean, it's a, it's a nice double IPA. It's hoppy. It's got the, the sort of citrusy aspect to it, but I, I'm enjoying it. I would recommend checking it out. So Tom, do you want to describe our first beer for us? Mm. I do. Yeah. Uh, this is from Dogfish Head. It's called American Beauty. Uh, <clears throat> Listeners will know I'm a Grateful Dead fan and uh, think that American Beauty was the greatest record ever produced in the history of music. <laughs> really? I, yeah. Mozart? No. Stop. <laughs> Bach, please. The Rolling Stones? I don't even want to talk about it. American Beauty. Have you heard so, Hanson's Mbop? <laughs> <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> I'll get to it after Britney Spears. And Anyway, it's a really nice, it's a pale ale with honey and granola. Mm. So it's just got a tiny little bit of sweetness, really easy drinking. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know, the great the, the deadheads love it. It was a nice beer. Like you yeah. said, it was just kind of a, a soft, easy drinking. Mm -hmm. Pale ales, when they're done right, can be just so enjoyable. I, I really yeah. like that one. Yeah, Dogfish Head is to beer what Ben and Jerry's is to ice cream. Mm. They want to be this tiny little niche cool thing. But having merged with Sam Adams, they're almost as big as Budweiser. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean they don't make good beer, though. That's right, yeah. How do you put granola in beer? 
Uh, right in the fermenter. Hmm. Can I do that at home? If I were home brewing beer, can I just dump some granola in there? No, uh, it's not quite as easy as that. Uh, you've got to worry about contaminating it and you know getting a. Uh, but it, but it theoretically that's it. Yeah. So when you see all these fruit beers, bam, right into the fermenter. Hmm. Interesting. All right, Nick. In honor of Trump's trip to meet the Queen, what is our second beer? We are having a Trooper Premium British beer, which is uh, created by Iron Maiden. Oh, the band <laughs> Iron Maiden. Apparently, there's some sort of. I don't know. They 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 work as with good as the Grateful Dead. I'm, I'm please, gonna... please, Nick. Your answer to that uh, has existential out of uh, the dimensions gate, to it. Out of the gate, no. Out of the gate, no. Um, yeah, it's um, yeah, just kind of a standard. It it felt very British to me. It felt very. Um, it was malty. It was very malty. Kind of yeah, Boddington's almost. Or, oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Newcastle. Newcastle, that's what I'm thinking of. Um, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of, of British beers, to be perfectly honest. Uh, it just didn't do a lot for yeah. me. It just it has that kind of light, kind of malty, borderline stale taste Ooh. to it. It just it does nothing for me. But Interesting. I like Iron Maiden. Yeah. yeah. And I, the I, can was know, cool. And the can was cool. Yeah. So I'm, I, I'll give it a, a three. <laughs> What's your three. sense, Tom? I'm going two and a half. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, that was course, a Midwest. Can we three. just say that we set the bar with American Beauty? Yeah, <laughs> that's and, right. And everything from there is downhill. Mm. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, this so. apparently wins awards in the UK, but maybe wow. you know we're in a different uh, well, you we're know, in a different continent. So it's yeah. Lower. I thought it was okay. Yeah, a little too multi for me, but yeah, yeah. I, I do do like the Queen and <laughs> <laughs> not so much Iron right. Maiden, but. <laughs> All right, sure what we, to do with that? Should we jump to speed round? Yeah, before we do that, oh, uh, yeah. if you guys want to check out the beers that we have on the po- uh, podcast, you can find us on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, just look for Barstool Politics on there, and you'll find all of our beer reviews. Now we can do speed All right, rounds. I'm excited about this topic. This is fun. So as we await a decision from the Supreme Court on the Trump administration's controversial effort to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census, a new wrinkle has emerged. Documents unearthed last week showed that one of the Republican Party's top gerrymandering experts, Tom Huffler, uh, who actually died in August of 2018, was driving was a driving force behind the decision to add the question about U.S. citizenship um, to the 2020 census. In personal documents, he wrote uh, the move would be advantageous to Republicans and non-Hispanic whites. This would seem to undercut the Trump administration's main argument that the citizenship question was needed to better enforce the Voting Rights Act. Critics have argued that the real motivation for the question is to benefit Republicans politically when it comes to drawing new political districts. Tom, a decision on the case could come at any moment. Uh, what's your sense of the significance of this news and whether it will have any impact on the court's decision? Well, first we should say uh, the government has vigorously mm-hmm. uh, uh, rejected the idea that this guy had anything to do with the question. Um, so no decision yet. There isn't a, another decision day scheduled for this week, so we probably won't know until next, although I suppose they could wake up tomorrow and say we're going to issue decisions on Friday, but probably not till next week. Last year, the last uh, decision was on June 26th, so we're still about three weeks uh, from the end of their schedule, and they've got 27 cases to go. Um, so this may not be even next week. They've got cases right. that are older and, and more pressing. Uh, Can, Government. I'm, so can, go ahead. Can I interrupt for just a second? Yeah, yeah. 
the my understanding is that the 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 uh, the census has to go to the printers by like July the it's like the first week of July though so mm-hmm. there is some pressing there's a need to oh, abso- on the, absolutely I mean, not that the Supreme Court cares but June twentieth was my recollection is the request okay get us a decision by June twentieth and we can do it and and my guess is they will uh, a lot of this twenty seven that's that's left aren't that big a deal so listen the new evidence is an unpublished study found by the estranged daughter of a guy on his hard drive after he died that says nothing about the census but instead speaks to an altogether sensible idea that you ought to create uh, legislative districts based on how many people in them can vote. I'm just going to I'm going to pause for I'm going to pause for effect here because this feels like the least controversial thing ever said in the history of the American Republic. Yes. But here's the thing that if if the that's not the argument the administration made or Wilbur Ross made for adding the census question adding the citizenship question to the census, right? I mean, the, mm-hmm. the idea is that, you know, Wilbur Ross argues that the Voting Rights Act, to protect minorities, we need to add this question to ensure that their votes are counted. The reality is that it's a, there's a different dynamic going on. They're pursuing it for other reasons, which are political in nature. Right. That's it. The question for the Supreme Court's entirely procedural. It yeah. is not constitutional. That said, uh, the new evidence this week isn't evidence to support the claim they're making. That is, the government rejects the idea. In fact, uh, uh, General Francisco says, uh, there's no smoking gun, there's just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. There's nothing here. From their perspective, Mm -hmm. I'll grant you that, but uh, their position is there is zero evidence that Ross, Trump, or anybody else relied on this strategist's advice relative to the census question. Does, does the intent so if they're going to yeah, change if you're sure. going to change the mind of the Supreme Court right you're going to have to have more than the allegation that this thing sitting on a hard drive found by the daughter of the dead guy uh, uh, somehow changed Republican policy so but so here's what yeah. I think's going on does everybody remember John Roberts getting cold feet on the Affordable Care mm-hmm. Act uh, it was a very concerted public effort to say the court loses its legitimacy if it overrules uh, Obamacare. I think that's what's happening here. A last-minute letter invoking tenuous evidence at best to try and push John Roberts to be the fifth vote. It looked like the court was divided four to four with Roberts sitting in the middle. It didn't say anything at the hearing, right? I mean, at the, yeah, mm-hmm. the arguments, oral arguments. So uh, the, the four conservatives say Congress has delegated to the Department of Commerce the right to write the census. The four liberals say... This is going to depress mm-hmm. uh, responses. Uh, Roberts is sitting in the middle, and now he's got, theoretically, uh, the basis upon which he can be the fifth vote to keep the question off <clears throat> rather than on. Mm-hmm. I'm not predicting that's what he'll do, but I don't think this is about genuine legal misunderstanding or sure. duplicity. I think it's about pressuring John Roberts. That sounds very conspiratorial. I don't know how I feel about this. So, and I, it's important, important that to note that right, when they did oral arguments, they knew a lot of this already. So, like mm-hmm. Wilbur Ross, yeah. he initially went to the Department of Justice to say, hey, do you need the, the citizenship question? They said no. no. He went to the Department of Homeland Security. They said no. He goes back to the DOJ and talks to Sessions, and Sessions says, actually, politically, this might be useful. And th- th- that's all been released. Yeah. So he's 
shopping for a reason to add this question. Might have gone to Interior and right. EPA. Right. Who knows? So, so my question for you is, I think you're right about the, the political nature of this. But does a malignant or malign intent, does that matter constitutionally? So let's no. say they say, oh, this is about, we care about minorities and the Voting Rights Acts, but they're really thinking about efforts to discriminate in terms of voting. Does that matter to the court? The court has said already that having political motives in the production of policy, even relying on external export, uh, experts, is not a violation of the Constitution. And let's just say this is, a, this is a thing happening in the wider context of gerrymandering. So even if everything they've said is true, the court hasn't said there's anything wrong mm -hmm. with doing it, other than if, it was, if there was lying about how Wilbur Ross got this question in front of so that would uh, matter. I, th I think the procedural question matters. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Does it matter in this case in that the sort of secondary aspect of this is potentially constitutional? So uh, the idea of having political motivations in policymaking is not a constitutional issue. But mm -hmm. in this case, the policymaking might have an impact on the idea of, of voting rights or the idea of one person, one vote or, you know, the ideas of uh, that kind of are, are core mm -hmm. to uh, you know, representation as laid out in the Constitution. Does that matter? In in would that would that change it? In I think case? it does. does but I I think it it matters in exactly the opposite way people are thinking about it. So imagine two legislative districts. One of them has let's say four, fifty thousand people in each. One of them has twenty thousand eligible voters and thirty thousand who are not eligible to vote. The other one has forty five thousand eligible voters. Uh, and let's say 1,000, so they're 46,000. The more powerful of those two districts is the one with 30,000 not able to vote mm -hmm. if you just simply count population. So if you're asking about one person, one vote, <clears throat> looking at eligible voters is a much more uh, appropriate way to manage the question of legislative districts. Sanctuaries shouldn't distort districts. There's a perverse incentive to be a sanctuary city mm -hmm. to produce a bigger population to get more votes. Mm -hmm. So what about on the flip side, which is that your beloved Constitution says that the census should be counting people, not, not citizens. voters or not citizens? Mm -hmm. It's a complicated question that I think has not gotten enough attention. And, and so because the Supreme Court said what we're about here is the process by which the question was produced, not the constitutionality of it, they didn't look to in oral argument, and I, expect they, I suspect they won't in their opinion, what exactly that word means in that context, because there are arguments both ways. Do you think the court, so I'm, I'm thinking about if, if the court rules five to four to allow the question, whether there will be a scolding in the opinion, because it feels to me that the Trump administration is throwing a political question at them, mm -hmm. and they know this mm -hmm. because they know that uh, that Ross was shopping for a reason. They know that he was meeting mm -hmm. with Steve Bannon and Chris Kobach. Right? I mean, mm -hmm. this, they know what their intent is, and they're forcing them to make a decision here, right? And they, they maybe have it. Ross hasn't been fully transparent in how in all of this, right? Do you expect that they're going to come down and say, "Don't put us in this position," or do you think they just say, "Here's the, here's our take on this"? Well, we've said this so many times. It's yeah. dangerous to predict the sure, Supreme right. Court. Um, uh, it, my sense here is that because Congress has delegated and in a way that gives uh, the Department of Commerce very broad latitude, uh, the, the five will fall on the side of allowing the question. Yeah. 
Whether that's a good idea or not, I don't know. Um, I could imagine John Roberts writing the opinion to say we'd invite Congress uh, to revisit the question of the authority given. Uh, it's a decennial census, so we won't come back to it sure. for a long Ten time. Years, yeah. But I think I, is, that might be the scolding. Yeah. Right? Uh, my theme is always Congress won't do its job, and, and that's what's perverting sure. American politics. And in some ways, this is a case about that. They've said to the Department of Commerce, make a census and do whatever you like with mm -hmm. it. Well, now they don't like what they did, so they're saying, don't do what sure. we told you to do and that you have the power to do because we don't like the result that it will produce. Right. And I think what the court's going to say is, then write a law mm -hmm. or change the law. You gave them the authority, and they did it. Sure. Now, again, go back to the process. You had authority to do it, but you had to follow a particular process to get the question. Um, I, I, I can't see them trying to climb inside of people's heads to figure out what their motivation is. Intent gets messy. Intent gets messy. But yeah, this we've been down that road and, before, right? And I think this is probably, I, I, I would understand the court's ruling here, but it feels a bit icky to me because mm -hmm. the, the professional census staffers are saying we shouldn't do this because it throws off the count, and our goal is to get an, a, an accurate count. And so it feels like well, the upper levels are playing politics with this. The ACS, this thing everybody says is such an important measure of who's here, and uh, goes to 2% of the population. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a minuscule number of people that take that. And I'm betting everybody sitting in this room never did. I haven't. Uh, I'm old, and I've never taken yeah. the ACS. never come to my mailbox. I think I got it once. You got it yeah. once. So, so the census is a, is a vastly more important document than this ACS. And the question is, what count matters, mm -hmm. it seems to me. I'm going back to a legislative district with 45,000 eligible voters that is less powerful than one with 20,000. Now, I really, I'm making up the numbers mm -hmm. for the purpose of, of making the point. Who should have more power in a, in a one-person, one-vote system? The 20,000 that have 30 next to them that can't vote or the 45,000 who are all eligible voters? And I just mean to say there's two mm -hmm. sides to this question sure. of how do you count, and what are you counting, and why are you counting? That's right. Um, it's it's messy, especially when you think about gerrymandering. The, the mm -hmm. count matters, though, right? I guess that's mm -hmm. the right. yeah. It's, 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 it's about nineteen fifty that they've they've moved towards eliminating questions on that because it reduces the number of people that respond. Um, yeah, we've we've gone over well, time. Well, even that even yeah, that question is, is more complicated. Yeah, as I understand it, the citizen uh, citizenship question on the ACS did not dramatically reduce response rates hmm. yeah it's we'll, we'll soon find out <laughs> we'll come back all right let's maybe the slap I, I just, yeah they've got gerrymandering cases mm -hmm. so wouldn't it be great if they said uh the the root problem here is politicians picking their voters rather than the other way around mm -hmm. and solve the gerrymandering problem so that the counts in this census become a little bit less significant mm -hmm. exactly that's that would, what i'm rooting yeah. for That'd be interesting. Mm -hmm. All right, let's stick with the court. So presidential candidate and mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg, has proposed a plan to overhaul the Supreme Court. It calls for expanding the number of justices from 9 to 15, with five affiliated with Democrats, five affiliated with Republicans, and five apolitical justices chosen by the first 10. Buttigieg has said uh, structural democratic reform would be his top priority, vowing to launch a commission on depoliticizing the Supreme Court in his first day as president. 
In an NBC News interview, Buttigieg said that he would support, quote, whatever Supreme Court reform will depoliticize the body. He went on to note that, quote, there may be others, but the point is we've got to get out of where we are now, where anytime there is an opening, there's an apocalyptic ideological fight, it harms the court, it harms the country. Tom, I'm fairly certain that you bring a heavy dose of skepticism to any attempt at restructuring the court. Uh, but I'm curious on your thoughts about Buttigieg's goal of depoliticizing the Supreme Court and this idea of restructuring the institution. The court's not politicized. Mm -hmm. The confirmation process is. So he's trying to solve the wrong problem. It, it, at least it feels like to me. Uh, and I, th I, I thought immediately when I read your intro to this about the settled law analogy. We keep hearing about Roe versus Wade. We have a settled approach to the Supreme Court. Uh, the Constitution doesn't dictate nine members, but we've had it for a long time. And the confirmation process, which is in this uh, Constitution, seems to me to be a thing that we have all agreed we're going to figure out how to use. Mm -hmm. So if the problem is that the confirmation process becomes so political uh, that it is, and I think he's right, it's a great word, apocalyptic mm -hmm. every time it comes up, solve that problem. Don't remake the court because Congress has made apocalyptic sure. every confirmation hearing. So I have a three-part plan. <laughs> <laughs> that preserves my beloved court. Now, but I'm serious about this. Um, I think one of the things Donald Trump has done that is genuinely admirable was to release early in his campaign 25 names and said to the American public, I will pick a justice from this list. Vet them, argue about them, vote for me on the basis of them, and he has. I think we should be much more aggressive with politicians running for president to produce a list so that we can vote for them on the basis of the most important thing they're going to do and so that we can vet these people up front. Two, we should eliminate live hearings. I know I had a chance to talk about this several months ago. These are not things we've always done. They're not things we need to do. And the record of the people being uh, nominated is generally so significant that you don't need the live hearing. That's where the histrionics happen. And then third, I think we should return to the filibuster for SCOTUS uh, appointees. That's what breathes some space, some room for neutrality, and uh, prevents and restraints, yeah. pre prevents the polls. I, that's how you solve the problem, not adding six judges to the Supreme Court. These are easy approaches. Changing the court, I think, says to people something terrible. Uh, and it will have a terrible result. Mm -hmm. Are all 15 going to vote on every case? Or are we going to treat it like, a, like an appellate panel, which typically have 15 or 16 judges, three of which vote on each case? Mm -hmm. No. I, I don't see it. So, I, yeah, I mean, I have a, a couple of takes on it. Um, I, so I don't necessarily agree with Tom that the court's not politicized. I think that... Um, you know, there's lots of research in political science that shows that, that you can predict like the justices on the court can be mapped on this sort of partisan spectrum. Whether that's a problem or not is a whole nother thing. But I, I think there is some politics built into it. But that that changes a different I, I mean, there's a different approach here. I, I tend to agree on one aspect with Tom about the changing of and, and disagree on another. Um, one of which is that, so I, when Julian Castro was on on campus a few weeks ago uh, for his campaign thing, somebody asked him about this, and I thought his response it's really stuck with me, which was um, I think it was a question actually about the filibuster, the broader filibuster, and whether he would be willing to sort of you know burn that in order to get legislation passed if he were president, and his response was that he would be willing to go down that road 
because there is essentially this baseline, which is majoritarian rule, right? At some point, you still have to get 50 votes to, to pass a piece of legislation. And doing getting rid of the filibuster doesn't, you know, there's still this kind of point that you fall back on. His point with with stacking the Supreme Court is there's no end to that. If you go from nine to 15, mm -hmm. what's to stop the next person from going to 22 and right. the next person from right. going to 30? And I thought that was a really interesting point. Whether you agree with burning the filibuster or not, it, it's a really dangerous precedent to go down. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's that's a that's a you know there's I don't know I I would be really hesitant to do that. The other part uh, the other part that that Buttigieg is getting at is is changing how we choose. Um, justices, which becomes just a philosophical question because that part is constitutional, right? That can't just be changed. I mean, it, it can be changed, but it would be really difficult to do. Philosophically, though, I, I, I like the idea of thinking about it that way. There are other countries who uh, nominate or bring people to the court, who, who name Supreme Court justices, where it's not politicians who are choosing them, it is legal experts or legal scholars who are doing that. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that that works really well, <laughs> that there are actually, rather than picking people based on you know a partisan view or how they would vote on certain issues, you're getting the essentially the opinion of uh, people who are, you know, legal experts, and they're choosing amongst themselves the the sort of the the best representatives. I, I realize that lawyers or you know the American Bar Association has some sort of self interest in that as well, but so do Republicans and Democrats who are nominating justices as well. So I, I like the idea of thinking about how you know how this would matter, but it does feel like. Uh, it's just a thought experiment because it doesn't feel like it's going to happen. I, I just don't understand how this depoliticizes the court by hyper-politicizing it. Uh, and you kind of made the the case, Phil. If there, if we have to do specific political research to gauge the political leanings of specific justices or judges in general, we're already saying that these you know, 10 judges are specifically affiliated with Republicans or Democrats, and they're going to choose. We're pretty much narrowing the court down to five justices yeah, instead exactly. of nine at the that point. The debate becomes about those yeah. last right. five. Yeah. So, and again, that means it doesn't change anything. You've just, the, the confirmation process hasn't been changed at all, and now we could potentially have, not necessarily that it would be even those um, uh, independent, quote-unquote, judges would be, uh, separate from the political parties, but the perception is that they are still more aligned with those two parties yes. than than we have now. At least there's some sort of measure of of uh, what's the word independence, um, yeah, autonomy, right? Yeah. No, I think this is a really important point, Nick, because if you move to a system like that, your identity becomes defined. If you're a justice as a Democrat or a Republican appointee. That's not the case now, right? I mean, a, a president makes the appointment, but you would be known as a Democratic Supreme Court justice, a Republic Supreme Court ju Republican. I, I don't like that. You know, for me, I think about if we're going to really address the source of the problem, it's who is making those choices mm -hmm. or, or who's voting for them. And to me, it's just gerrymandering is the, is the core problem here. You've got to depoliticize those individuals in the Senate who are making these yeah. choices. We uh, Parties have moved to the extreme. You start moderating that, you draw better maps where the voices are more moderate. We're going to get more moderate justices, and I think that helps everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, fixing the problem at the top levels, like you said, Nick, we're going to find new ways of creating partisan angles to all sure. of that. It's, um, 
I, I think that's a great point. I, I, so as a thought experiment, we, to, I, I'm interested in Tom's thought, but I, all of your thoughts. Would it be a good or a bad thing to involve? So let's imagine a system in which the Supreme Court, the nine justices who are on the Supreme Court, either got to produce a list of names, right? These are people that we think might be good and the president chooses from them. Or mm -hmm. in the end, let's say that the, the nine justices of the Supreme Court had the final say. So after it's nominated by the president, it goes through Congress, it still has to have you know the approval of the Supreme Court. Would that be a good thing, a bad thing? Would it have changed anything? Do you think there are any nominees who would have been turned down by the justices already on the Supreme Court? Hmm. If the aim is to depoliticize the court, drawing them into the political process that puts people into a seat feels to me like something that would make it worse mm -hmm. rather than better. You make them political actors. Yeah. Yeah. But if they if, if they were just essentially an arbiter of is this person qualified, right? So they're not I mean I realize you can't necessarily separate that, but I'm not aware of a, a apart from George Bush's what was her name Harriet oh, Myers. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the last time an unqualified person was nominated for the Supreme Court. You can make a case that some are better than others, but they all deserve I, I, to be at the just, table. I can't, I can't think of one. Hmm. Um, if if what we mean is temperament and judicial knowledge, um, the other thing that occurs to me is that the, the framers wanted the people to have power. And while they directly uh, elect our Article One and Article Two uh, branches, they indirectly elect Supreme Court justices. And I, and I think the framers had some wisdom there. Um, we can say we think the court is bending too far right. Let's elect a president who will bend it back to the left. And I don't know if that happens in a system where you've got left and right appointing mm -hmm. what they think to be moderate middle. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's an interesting. I'm, I'm I'm enjoying having the thought experiment now yeah. as I think out loud about it. But I, I would I'd, I'd hate to disempower the electorate mm -hmm. further from the Supreme Court. They're, they're, they're clearly only doing this indirectly. Um, I just I feel like we're fixing a problem we don't have when we are surrounded by lots of problems that are fixable. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to end. Because we got to talk about the Queen now. Yeah. All right. Tweet this segment to Mayor Pete, though, because that's clearly <laughs> way more thought than he's put into it. Well, I, at least Mayor Pete is thinking about this, right? He may, yes. he may be wrong in his solution, but I'm, I'm, I appreciate the, the effort. All right. So this week, Queen Elizabeth welcomed President Trump to Buckingham Palace with all the grandeur of a formal state visit. At the same time, Mr. Trump was engaged in an ugly dispute with the mayor of London, who he called a stone-cold loser <laughs> and said was doing a terrible job of running Britain's capital city. In a set of tweets, Trump attacked the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, uh, stating, quote, Khan reminds me very much of our, our very dumb and incompetent mayor of NYC, de Blasio, <laughs> who has done a terrible job. He's only not and, wrong. All right. At only half his height. Jeez. Um, <laughs> So he goes on. You cannot make this stuff no. up. No. Oh, he keeps going out in the tweet. In any event, I look very forward to being a great friend of the United Kingdom, and I'm looking very much forward to my visit to London. Landing now. <laughs> End of tweet. So the juxtaposition of high pageantry and low name-calling on the first day of Mr. Trump's visit to Britain captures Trump perfectly. He is impulsive and vindictive, but absolutely delights in a lavish red carpet welcome. Phil, this type of visit is ex uh, deeply exciting for anyone who studies comparative politics like yourself. Uh, what were your reactions to Trump's visit and time with the Queen? 
well, I mean, this is we we've talked lots about how Donald Trump is different from previous presidents, right? <laughs> <laughs> norms and structuring behavior and whatnot so i I, what i can't help but think about a lot here is the the difference in um uh, many countries not all but many countries around the world separate the role of head of state and head of government Mm. so the idea Mm. that Mm -hmm. the the chief political officer the person who's in charge of policy is one position and the person who's in charge of you know formality and pageantry and events and all of that kissing babies is another so you have in <laughs> london the queen and the prime minister yeah. right in the in germany you have a president and a chancellor so lots of countries do that because there is there are reason there are complications with expecting one person to play both roles both the symbol of a country and a partisan political actor and this is in my in my mind this is a collision of those two roles right <laughs> trump is is expected to be both this representative of america and also the 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 head of the republican party and trying to balance those two things is a lot to expect of anyone and it's it's where separating them has real advantages and and it seems it's other presidents have been able to realize that hey this moment i'm in is a ceremonial role as opposed to a political role and trump doesn't seem to recognize that or to care one of the two that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that divide. It's a, that's a great point. You're right. Uh, and all presidents struggle with that, but Trump in particular struggles with that. <laughs> Phil has just sneakily added yet another member to our federal government. And I just want to make note of the fact <laughs> that now we'll have two heads of state rather than one. That's a lot no, more government state, than I want. No, one head one of state. One head of state, one head of government. They're separate. <laughs> uh, yes, the operative word being head. Head of something. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, to me, what's striking is, is how much... Trump enjoys the head of state roles. I mean, he yeah. really enjoys spending yeah. time with the queen in a way, and he is respectful. Um, you know, he is, he's not always that way with heads of government. He oftentimes bickers, especially with uh, heads of democratic countries. But the queen occupies a very unique role for him. And I'm, I'd like to know more about why that's the case. But he was so deferential and appreciative of the time. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he's attacking the mayor of London, which is completely unprofessional. You know, and it's just he's got to know better than that. Oh, is there anybody that doesn't want to see Donald Trump? And Boris Johnson oh going head to head on something. I, this is this is the stuff of which Saturday Night Live dreams are made, isn't it? And it's probably going to happen too. And we're going to yeah. have those yeah. two, and you know, maybe the two greatest democracies of the world are going to be led by those two individuals. And I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> Tom, Tom, can I make an argument? I want to go back to your 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 critique that I want two heads of something. Can I, can I make a political science <laughs> argument about why it's good? Well, well, use this as a teaching moment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not that you have to agree with me. So the the argument that people make about why it's good is, you know, I'm going to go back to the classic worst case example. Go back to, you know, Hitler. Right. So Hitler is an example of of a person who is playing both the head of state and head of of government role. Mm -hmm. And the problem is it becomes easy to say if you disagree with my policy, you are a bad German, right? Yeah, and so yeah. it, it conflates the sort of national identity and the symbolism with the policy. And I, that's where I like that, you know, it does create a separate position, but I like the idea that you can say, hey, I'm a good American and I really don't like Trump, or mm-hmm. I'm a good American, I love America, and I really don't like Barack Obama, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. It separates the political from the um, from the uh, the sort of ceremonial or symbolic, we, mm-hmm. everyone can love the Queen and and and, and hate Theresa May or hate the you know whoever David Cameron or or whoever's the the Prime Minister. That's interesting. 
Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm doing a thought experiment over here, and it is, who would our head of ceremonial government be, and could Americans ever agree that there is somebody who could hold that role uh, in a way that would unify and be uh, the kind of desirable statesman or stateswoman-like um, position that you want it to be? It, it certainly uh, couldn't the, be. The queen has the advantage of yes. hundreds of years of uh, English right. history. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it should <clears throat> certainly be a Clinton, right? We can agree on that. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to cut that. <laughs> well, certainly, like France, they, they have elections for both, right? Mm -hmm. and, and there are different qualifications for being the president as opposed to being elected, mm -hmm. the, you know, the well, prime. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, I mean, Germany, yeah. you know, a lot of the countries that have both of these have an appointment process for the president. And, and oftentimes it's a retired politician mm -hmm. or, you know, mm -hmm. imagine if John McCain weren't dead. A, a retired John McCain years mm -hmm. after service could be something that mm -hmm. if he's not speaking out on political issues anymore, he's just going and, you know, mm -hmm. shaking hands with the queen and mm -hmm. meeting with the, the president of France and whatnot. They, I, I could see Americans getting behind mm -hmm. that. John McCain's mm -hmm. probably too identified with a party, but you no, could come no, up with I think with he could do that. Actually, I think Joe Biden might be better at that role than the actual wow. being president, yeah, that's right? Point. That's a great point. Yeah, because yeah. it would remove – he's very good at that ceremonial stuff, mm -hmm. uh, empathetic, but I don't know if I want him making foreign policy decisions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. More towards a Keanu Reeves type or maybe a Morgan Freeman. I haven't really decided yet. Somewhere in the middle. Did you see the, the of that? see the Twitter account that is now all Keanu Reeves walking <laughs> into rooms with different music? It's fantastic. It is oh, brilliant. This... Oh, there's Phil. He Phil's back. We lost you for a second, Phil. Just digital hellscape yeah. we live in. Are you still there? <laughs> yeah, I'm here. Okay, good, good, good. All <laughs> right, so let's go to the final topic. This is going to be a fun one. So measles, vaccines, and libertarians. Lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. So, all right, we're going to close with a topic we have not discussed yet on the podcast, the measles outbreak, uh, mandating vaccinations, and libertarianism. The data is deeply <laughs> troubling with measles, uh, measles cases surging to 981 so far this year, the highest annual case count in nearly three decades, according to the CDC. Uh, the latest tally represents an increase of 41 measles cases since last week and the highest annual case count since 1992 when we had over 2,000 cases reported and four people died. The highly contagious viral infection was declared eliminated by the United States in the year 2000. Not so much anymore. Uh, the question for us today is where is libertarianism on the vaccine debate? Tom, as a proud libertarian, where do you fall on the right to demand that others are vaccinated? He's just backing you into a corner. I love it. I love it. I'm so excited about this. <laughs> so watch, watch what happens next. I agree with it. Yeah. Uh, I, what made me think about this one is that I, as you hear the, the debate about libertarianism, one of the critiques is, well, it's just a bunch of anarchists, mm -hmm. a bunch of individualists who want to live their lives without any respect for other people. And uh, it's not true. Uh, there are some like that. So Rand Paul is opposed, for example, and, and he's a medical doctor, to mandatory vaccines. But I, I, my sense of the, the bulk of libertarians is that they're worried about um, third-party harm. I don't have a problem with a person harming him or herself. So I think, for example, laws preventing me from gambling, taking drugs, doing those sorts of things that hurt nobody but myself. Are, are problematic, to use a podcast word. Mm -hmm. But this is not such a case. The external consequences of not requiring vaccines on people who did not make that choice are considerable. So newborns exposed to people unvaccinated and sick, uh, those who have medical conditions that prevent them from being uh, vaccinated, 
this is a significant third-party effect. And I think most libertarians would say they're perfectly fine with a mandatory government intervention mm -hmm. exercising police power. Yeah. I even hate to say that word because there isn't a less restrictive approach that protects innocent people. Good. Mm -hmm. We're I, not all anarchists. <laughs> no, 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 that's interesting. Um, I don't know. Nick? Um, where does it end, though, Tom? Well, that's I, a good question, right? Where, yeah, where that line is. Yeah, I, I mean, realistically, I'm, I'm of the mindset that the, the fact that it's gotten this bad is is insane to me and none of these the fact that we ever declare a disease or or some type of infection as as eradicated just isn't the case uh -huh. it, we we perceive it as that and then the second that somebody doesn't get vaccinated it's still there uh -huh. um i i just i'm not that i i believe in this i'm just playing devil's advocate but where where is the dividing line in government intervention in forcing people to vaccinate themselves for something or a, a perceived threat or something that mm -hmm. you know we don't have a, a conception of yet that could potentially you know show up down the road that's more yeah. nefarious than just something to, is just to preserve my bona fides mm -hmm. here my friends i want the smallest government possible doing the fewest things possible <laughs> in in the least number of ways possible and only when they meet a very high burden of proof mm -hmm. and it's it's that fourth dimension that i think is important here if government meets the burden of proof that the external effects, uh, and here with vaccine regulation, uh, I think this is true, are large, deadly, preventable, and accrue to third parties who weren't in a position to make a decision, government should intervene. But, but let, me, so let me throw an alternative. Somebody's going to say, well, that opens the door to government telling people they should take statins if they have high cholesterol, mm -hmm. or they should take fill-in-the-blank if they have some other disease. On that score, I'd be profoundly opposed to it because you're not there protecting third parties. You're trying to protect people from themselves. And, and I think a fundamental tenet of libertarianism is you do not protect people from themselves. You protect people from other people. As I think about this, I, this is a really interesting argument. And I think there are, to, you, I'm not, these probably wouldn't be your words, but there are a handful of things that the government can be very effective at. Yes. This might be one of them. I agree. You know, another one that pops in my head is I'm thinking about the Federal Reserve, right? There are certain things where you say mm -hmm. it's, there's real value in that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I'm also wondering, as you were talking, I was wondering about environment, the environment, right? So is, is, does the arg argument extend mm -hmm. that far to say that choices made by the country will have a negative impact on others down the road. I mean, is, is that with libertarians probably would be less comfortable with that. But I think there are a handful of things where you could say the I impact agree. extends. And this yeah. is my whole point in bringing up the topic. Yeah. We, all, we all caricature one another, right? Republicans are all conservative, fill in the 10 blanks that follow that. And Democrats are all progressive, fill in the 10 blanks that follow. And libertarians are all anarchists mm -hmm. who don't give a shit about the rest of the world. And I think the answer is that's not true. Mm -hmm. I think what, what libertarians say is, let's be judicious about the places where we give government, and government's force. That's all it ever is, right? Government can force you to do things or force you not to do things. Let's be judicious about the places we empower government to compel us to do a thing or prevent us from doing a thing. And here, and, I, and I'd argue that compelling is a much more important thing sure. than preventing, but here it seems to me government has a very uh, compelling argument for compelling a person to do a thing. Should we keep kids out of public school? We should. Should we fine families that don't uh, engage in that? We should. The science is unequivocal. 
the harm is significant, the intervention is minimal, and it protects third parties. And just doing a little bit of re oh, go ahead, Phil. Yeah. No, I was gonna. I was just gonna say that I'd be interested to see a breakdown of people who are opposed to mandatory vaccinations to see where they fall on the political spectrum. Because my experience, and you, Bill, you may remember this when we were in Colorado yeah. back in grad school. It, this was a huge thing, and they yes. weren't libertarians. No. That were it was it was like you know the the sort of neo hippies, right? Yeah. It was mm -hmm. like the ultra liberal people mm -hmm. who were opposed to it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, it would be kind of we we have this maybe perception of the types of people who are opposed to vaccines, but I don't know that that's you know, even how it, it plays out. Mm -hmm. The courts have taken much more seriously religious objections than they have health-driven uh, objections mm -hmm. because the latter tend to have no basis in science. The former have uh, at least a connection to the First Amendment. But we have never taken the position in this country that the First Amendment prohibits or permits you to do anything you like or prevents the government from intervening in any way in your life. Uh, if, if, a, if a religious sect said, we are going to start sacrificing human beings, government absolutely has the right to say uh, that is not a thing uh, protected by the First Amendment. And frankly, there's a sort of nice analogy there, right? That, that failing to vaccinate yourself may in fact sacrifice human beings, ones who weren't party to right. the decision you made. That's critical. And, and for me, what? that's the critical element. Mm -hmm. What if the what if the sacrificial people volunteer to be sacrificed? <laughs> Good point, Phil. <laughs> Ignoring that point, I, the other thing I <laughs> just doing a little bit of reading before we came on air today about this. This is a, a fairly rigorous debate within the libertarian community. You mm -hmm. go online, and, and there's lots of uh, discussions and articles, and people are really having what seems like a, a meaningful debate about this. Uh -huh. And it was, it was exciting to see that, that there is, and I think you've, you've found the, the, the correct balance there. My guess is this is the, the side that most libertarians would fall mm -hmm. on. Um, yeah, Richard Epstein, who's kind of the, the mm -hmm. spokesperson for all things libertarianism, this is his position. Mm -hmm. and, and as he took it publicly at, at, at the Hoover Institution, got a lot of pushback. And you know, basically what he said was, listen, look at the external effects, look at the ease with which they can be prevented, and look at the minimal harm that's done by preventing them. Uh, it is difficult to make a case if you're a libertarian for doing nothing, mm -hmm. I think. And, this, and, and I think many libertarians think the same thing. This is Locke's night watchman, right? There's, there's a minimal right. role for government. Mm -hmm. And yeah, mm -hmm. no, this, this strikes me as incredibly reasonable. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that we're having as many of these debates in as many different aspects of society as we are right now. I'm, I, I'm of the opinion that the, the Internet is the primary reason behind all this. We're giving credence to this kind of shit. And it's really not, like you said, Phil, it's not the people who you would kind of perceive as... as attaching to themselves um, to, you know, this kind of belief. It's, you know, it's uh, who Jenna McCarthy and, and mm -hmm. like, just yeah, wealthy, right. yep. you know, pretty left-leaning people who shouldn't be doing that. It's we're giving credence to flat earthers and, and birthers and people are mm -hmm. just breaking down these accepted truths that we all kind of stood behind for a, a very, very long mm -hmm. time. And it'll be, I don't know if it's, if it's interesting or if it's frightening to think that this is just kind of the beginning of that, that mindset. I, I, I hope there's some sort of curtailing of that with these bigger mm -hmm. issues kind of, you know, we're seeing the results of some of this early stuff. And that's going to push people back into a more centralized, normalized kind of way of thinking. But I don't know. 
Other people are stupid. You're not stupid. Other people are stupid. Being sensible is a good thing, Nick. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> On that note. Yeah, this was fun. Mm -hmm. um, thanks, Tom, as always, for yeah, joining us. This is great. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Um, if you guys, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, if you weren't here and I stall for time as I start things, <laughs> um, if you like the podcast, questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, just want to see what we're up to, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P O L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics. The podcast, uh, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, uh, most major podcasting platforms. And then we are partnered, uh, like I said at the beginning, with uh, Predicted. Uh, Predicted is a real money political prediction market uh, where you can uh, buy and sell shares in future political events, pretty much a stock market for politics. Um, Barstool Politics listeners who use the promo link when opening up a new account will receive up to a $20 match on their first deposit. Uh, so open up a $20 account, uh, you'll receive a $20 match. Uh, so you get $40 to use on Predicted. Uh, um, just use the promo link predicted.org slash promo slash BarstoolPaul20 uh, and check it out. Anything else, guys? This was great. Yep. Absolutely. Thanks again, Tom. I'm... I'm, I'm Thank you for being here because I am not Libertarians on my aren't today. anarchists. That's our <laughs> phrase for the day. I'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Shut up and sit down.